नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा वेलकमिंग यू टू अनदर इंटरेस्टिंग डिस्कशन today's discussion is on the topic of zionism now you know a lot of times this word keeps getting bandied about or used in many discussions oh this falana is a zionist this is zionism x is zionism y is zionism we actually don't know what zionism is all about to be very honest a lot of people talk about it but a lot of people don't know about it so i was like you know what let's do a podcast with zionism and who better to talk about zionism than our resident expert jaydeep prabhu so jaydeep thanks for coming on the podcast thanks for having me so jaydeep let's start with this um, can you start with the origins so let's start with the origin the core of zionism so what's the ideology and how did it crop up so go for it see kushal that's like actually a very big question and this is one of the complexities of zionism now in essence zionism is nothing other than a form of nationalism now what makes it unique um is that it is a nationalism of a people who are not living on the land which they are claiming um not you'll see french nationalism the french people live on french territory and then they claim this is our country zionism is an idea uh, of jewish people for a jewish state and these people lived primarily in europe when the idea was flourishing so that's one thing that's very unique so but essentially keep that in mind that it's uh, sort of a nationalism now what are the origins now you will hear that in jewish prayers they have said lashana haba ab yerushalayim like next year in uh, yerushalayim uh, next year in jerusalem right but for for almost 2000 years they were in the diaspora they were outside of the land the holy land and they never actually came back so why now first is that we have to understand historically that um jewish immigration to the holy land was controlled uh, the muslims held it for the longest time it's not like anybody could come in and uh, live there after the romans kicked them out uh, and the second thing is that the idea of having a na- nation state there are a couple of factors one is they are welcome in europe they finally realized we cannot become Europeans no matter how hard we try that's one thing and this idea of nationalism in the modern sense uh in the sense that a nation can have a state I, nations might be old but a nation each nation having its own state is a more modern idea back in the day we had multinational uh, empires um the ottoman empire is a great example the ottomans uh there were greeks and bulgarians and you know there were turks and they all lived and arabs and they all lived in one empire Uh, and nobody felt that we are different so there is that progression of just political philosophy as well and that is where the idea uh, kicks in after the french revolution and even then you'll notice that even after the french revolution when the idea kicked in jews were very resistant to move to what was then palestine primarily because in my opinion jews went out of their way to assimilate uh, and be part assimilate not in the sense of like converting and becoming part of the mainstream but to live as a dignified community of their own within their host country um and they they did their best they said okay fine you know maybe we'll not wear a kippa and maybe we'll not um insist on holidays on shabbat and they tried to compromise but and they learned the french or german or russian literature the language all these sorts of things unfortunately despite this they were like, every time there was like a pogrom 
and the, the, there's a lot of anti-Semitism and the, the Jews were targeted. And suddenly, towards the end of the 1800s, they realized there's nothing we can do to ensure our safety, no matter how much we try to assimilate. Um, we cannot. These people will never accept us as one of their own, regardless of how fluently I speak their language, how well I know the history of my host country, no matter how much of their literature and philosophy and music I know. I'm always going to be seen as an outsider. So that is how the idea came. Now, here again, there's a complication. This is why I said this is a very complex question. And I'm going to give you just like this, you know, superficial depth because I can teach at least a year-long course on this. That's how um, thorny this issue is. Now, what happens is you'll see, for example, Jews in Italy were not as persecuted. Um, in fact, very little compared to, say, Jews in, say, Poland or Russia. Um, the standard example. Example is Germany, but actually the uh, Jews in Germany until Hitler came to power, it wasn't nearly as bad there as it was in Poland or Russia. And even France was fairly anti-Semitic. The Dreyfus affair in the late 1890s, uh, mid-1890s, for example. Um, so Zionism was seen by many as a solution for the persecution faced by the Jews of Eastern Europe. So okay. you ask, <clears throat> you ask an East, you ask a say a Jew living in Berlin or Paris or Rome. They'll say, yeah, yeah, we are Zionists. And for that, what that means is the, the Jews who are living in the Pale of Settlement, which because they're not allowed to live in like major cities, and they, you know, they had their shtetls, they had like uh, rural farms in Poland, and you know, very few Jews might have lived in uh, big cities like Moscow. Now, those people, because they're persecuted, they need to go to Israel. They need to have a state of their own where they can be protected, so they're not going to be persecuted. And that's what Zionism meant. Uh, essentially, the, the, and that's the core. Now, there are many varieties of this. Like, for example, when we talk about, say, Indian nationalism or any nationalism, uh, we might have an idea of what happens after independence. Do we want India to be a socialist country or a capitalist country or a whatever? And so in that sense, there are differences in <clears throat> and there are differences in how to achieve the in, uh, independence. Uh, Gandhi wanted a, the Satyagraha, whereas uh, Bhagat Singh had a different idea, for example. And so these are the, the differences in the different kinds of Zionism. You'll hear these names like revisionist Zionism or labor Zionism. And these are the differences. But the crux of it, if you have to like boil it down to the absolute bare minimum, the one thing which if you don't have, I don't think you're a Zionist. And this is again debatable, I will point out. The, the one thing is that you have to believe that the Jews deserve a state of their own. The Jews should have a state of their own. So, so let's expand on this particular point because this is very important. So, what is the uh, so what is the rationale behind why Jews deserve to state on their own? It is just uh, the persecution, uh, because then what if people say this is a persecution complex and uh, that's not a valid argument, or it's more uh, persecution but driven by a strong civilizational identity? There is no doubt. See, here's there's actually the, a couple of months ago I had a very fascinating conversation with the professor. Um, in Beersheva, and we were talking about Judaism, and I said, look, ultimately you are a religion, and of course around a religion a culture develops, and that's fine, but you cannot tell me that Judaism is uh, not a religion. And they said, no, but we are more than a religion. It's not, we're not exactly a religion, in the sense, we don't have to believe in God. And I said, okay, explain. I mean, I understand you, and I know that you don't have, faith is not important, uh, or rather it's not the defining feature of Judaism. You can, as long as you follow the mitzvot, the 613 mitzvot, you're fine. And descend, uh, and you, uh, your, if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. Uh, these sorts of things, which are again, not necessarily faith-based. 
Um, and he gave me an, a description of Judaism. Um, and I think I shared this on Twitter also that day. I was quite amu uh, not amused, um, piqued. My interest was certainly, uh, what do you call it, uh, stoked. And he said that the way he defined Judaism, it fits not, you know, normally we see that Abrahamics on one side, it's revealed, it's concrete, it's fixed. And then we have a culture of Hinduism, which has religion, but it has so many other elements to it. Uh, he put Judaism closer to that, not all the way, but much closer to that than I had realized that it would fit. And I asked him, is this like a mainstream opinion? And he said, no, what happens is we use the language of Christianity. So we say religion, we say sect, we say saint. Now these words have specific connotations in Christianity and we use them without realizing they don't fit perfectly. And we have seen this same argument made by Hindus who say we don't like this word religion because dharma is not exactly religion. It's it's a fair enough approximation but not a good fit, not exactly, not a perfect fit. And this is the thing with Judaism as well. So that's the first thing I will say. When uh, is it a civilizational issue? Yes, it is a civilizational. It's not just a religious issue. It's a civilizational issue. It becomes a civilizational. It becomes a religious issue if you look at Judaism through a Christian lens, where they look at it as a faith-based community. Uh, I'll tell you, the Kingdom of Judah, for example, there was just enough evidence that there was uh, idolatry, paganism, whatever you want to call it, in the Kingdom of Judah as well. Um, just a couple of days ago, they found uh, a new complex uh, outside Jerusalem um, where they found these things. So it, it's more complicated than seeing it as just like a, you know, like Christianity or Islam, which are far more clearly defined compared to Judaism, at least. Nothing. Now, in terms of persecution, now this is again, like almost everything I say is going to be debated hotly. Um, these are debates we still have. Is it a persecution complex like that? I don't know if it's a complex necessarily if you've been persecuted for 2,000 years and not a single country has uh, ever allowed you uh, refuge. Um, India is the one example. Uh, we were not even aware that we had Jews in India. We were, they were so well, um, <clears throat> again, not assimilated, but they got along so well that, you know, we just, many people are not aware of the Jewish uh, presence in India even. Only now. Uh, because of social media, because of uh, improving ties with Israel, that sort of stuff. But look at other countries, even America, which is, you know, the great uh, diaspora uh, of, uh, for, for Jews. They closed their uh, borders uh, during World War II, England as well. And then historically, in 1291, I think uh, the British kicked, the, the English kicked out the Jews. And in 1492, I think, the, uh, 1494, uh, the Spaniards the, uh, kicked the Jews out. And Jews have always suffered. Now, Again, the question is this, even Napoleon, for example, what he said is he's seen as the, the great secular hope and all that sort of stuff in that sense. So even for him, what he said is like Jews can be as long as they're French, you will have equal rights. And how did he define it? He said, look, you can have all the individual rights, like right to uh, like a, a jury trial and all these sorts of things. No special taxes because you're Jewish. We give you all these individual rights, but you cannot act as a community. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it's like. This Shabbat kosher business don't bother me, but yeah, you will have the right to appear before. Uh, you, you know, people can't just pick you up and beat you up. You you can come to court. You can sue people. You can own property. All that's fine, but no cultural collective right. And essentially, what that does over time is you you're being, you're going to be forced to meld into the majority, and essentially your culture will get destroyed. And that's what he wanted. He was a secular person. He didn't really care that there was a 
you know, that Jews became Christians, but he wanted Jews to be French at least. Atheistic French, sure, uh, maybe, that's fine. But forget the particularity of Judaism. So when you have that sort of history, if you ask me, is it a persecution complex? I said, well, can you tell me one place where Jews had an option where they could live on their own? And which is why I reject the persecution thing. Uh, that that is the primary motivation. But yes, of course, uh, there's no denying that when the idea of Zionism kicks in in the, in the late 1800s, at least, uh, persecution was definitely one of the key uh, factors motivating uh, migration. But it's again complicated there also. For example, when you see Jewish migration to Israel or to other parts of the world, one thing you will notice is that Israel for many is not the first choice. So it's not this sudden sense of like, oh, yes, this is our land. Our fathers, uh, forefathers came from here. We have to go there. Uh, it, as late as 1990, for example, the Russian, um, when the Russians allowed Jews to leave, the primary, the, the, the preferred destination was the United States, not Israel. Many of the people who came to Israel in the 1910s, 1920s and all, they went back to Europe saying, I can't live here. I don't want this. Many of them came here because, for example, a Jew in Poland was perhaps found it difficult to go to France. And so he said, fine, if I can't go anywhere else, I'll, you know, it's safer to be in Israel um, than staying in Poland. But ideally, I'd rather go to France or England. So it, 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 it is persecution, but for whatever reason, that's not uh, as high up as one might uh, think on the <clears throat> sorry priorities for migration. All right, then, uh, okay, so we've kind of uh, covered uh, the, the vague origins and we've understood the, the reasons also in some way. But then what is, uh, if we were to call the core of Zionism, so what is the core of Zionism? Then? So we have to still address that. If you look at the activists of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, for them, they, they said that Zionism meant you have to believe that we should have a Jewish homeland. And... I'll get back to that word homeland later, and that all the Jews should move to that homeland. Now, this creates problems for Jews who don't feel that persecuted. They said, why should I abandon my good life in Chicago or New York um, and go to this you know, desert hell? Because, uh, no, I mean, see, we think of Israel as, or this area now as plagued by warfare and terrorism. But back in the day, this was like swampland and this malaria. The swamps had to be like, cleaned up and fixed and turned into agricultural land. It was like, it was very difficult. The first Aliyah, which was in 1882, um, struggled um, to, to live here. Uh, many Jews went back, even in the second Aliyah, the, the figures as high as 50, 60, 70% of the people who came, they went back saying, I can't live here in Israel. So you, you tell an American Jew living comfortably in New York, in a city, you know, in the US, and mm -hmm. uh, you tell them suddenly that, uh, you know, if you're a Zionist, that means you have to go to Israel. They're like, yeah, no thanks, we're not interested. Right? So there is that thing. So over time, they realized uh, that perhaps, and, and the, 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 uh, Ben-Gurion, for example, one of the, the, the first prime minister of Israel and one of the major leaders, he realized that Jews who live in America can still help Israel in terms of uh, financial assistance, in terms of influence with the American government and these all sorts of other things. And he yeah. said, fine, uh, we're going to keep quiet on the making Aliyah. That's what they call immigration, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, for them, it's like a, 
it's special. It's not just immigration. You know, normal people immigrate, but this is holy. This is the divine sort of, uh, you know, God promises this land. This is our home. So it's not immigration. When a Jew goes to Israel, it's Aliyah. Aliyah means mm-hmm. to rise, right? To walk up, to rise up to towards Jerusalem. So Got it. Uh, he said, okay, fine. Um, let's back off on the whole, uh, every, every Jew has to make an Aliyah sort of uh, attitude and this is again to this day it's contested people still many people still feel that you know Jews should make Aliyah and the diaspora is a problem these debates keep continuing this is not settled but I'm just telling you like the rough trajectory the mainstream trajectory and when I say mainstream sometimes it might be as by as little a margin as 51% (laughs) so don't think that this is like okay 90% of the people believe this and only 10% disagree with Jadeep no some of these issues Mm. like a 51-49 some of them are 80-20 so it depends and he said the crux of this has to be that you have to believe in a Jewish state. Now, mm. why is this important? Like I said, things like kosher. Um, we live in the US. It's not easy to keep kosher uh, because you have to check every restaurant. They're not compelled to keep kosher. They'll go by the majority population. They're not going to serve a minority. It, it's, it's difficult to maintain kosher. Shabbat being holiday, for example. This is another problem. Like I have to go home for Shabbat, meaning Friday evening I have to go home and um, do my prayers or whatever it is. Uh, other cultures will say, like, sorry, like Muslim countries will say, Friday is our day of prayer, Saturday is your problem, not mine. And Christians will say, Sunday is our day of prayer, our day of rest, Saturday is your problem, not mine. So these sorts of things um, are are an issue. And these are just like two simple examples I gave. But it is not easy to for Jews to live in a society that does not accommodate them. And so that is why they said, if we had our own country, we can designate Saturday as the weekly day off. So we have we can keep Shabbat and we can uh, have a law saying all restaurants should be kosher or they should have like clear signs like uh, about what is kosher, what is not. Supermarkets can be kosher, all these sorts of things. So it just becomes easier to live rather than be the exception where we have to struggle and figure out which restaurant is kosher, which supermarket is kosher. We can just be and the exception will be the other way around. Fair enough. Now let's get into a slightly different territory. So we covered the core, kind of covered the core. We covered the origins and we covered the purpose also in a way, you know, why they thought of these things. Now, there's not one Zionism from what I have understood. So so everybody's Zionism is is something else. It's like the spectrum, right? So, so it's like the United Colors of Benetton or something. So that's how everybody has their own Zionism. So tell me now, what are the different kinds of Zionism? I, I guess we cannot cover all of them, but at least the ones that are in the mainstream and the ones that are probably, you know, kind of known the most. See, when most people, when they say Zionism, and, and when I say most people, I mean most people do, who don't, have a clue about Zionism uh, or don't really follow Israel too closely or the or Jewish issues too closely. Um, when they say Zionism, they think of Theodor Herzl and political Zionism. Uh, and that kind of Zionism is largely, I would say, secular. And again, I should, okay, uh, I should explain that word. I will get to it. Um, but essentially, it means that... <clears throat> Judaism as a culture rather than as a religion, meaning, you know, you're not um, mandated to 
go for prayer every Saturday. It's you know, it's not a law that you have to go for prayer. It's not a law that you have to keep kosher. It's not a theocracy. It is a lot more about um, the the general symbols of the state, right? Like the menorah, the Star of David, you know, Shabbat being the holiday instead of Saturday or uh, instead of Sunday or a Friday or something. These sorts of things. Uh, but you are free to do what you want. You can be an atheist and you know live that culture as many Jews do. Uh, they're very atheistic, but they're, they're culturally Jewish, meaning they might be atheists, but they still follow kosher laws. For example, for example, right? Uh, these sorts of things. Now that's the political sort of Zionism. Now, as I said, Zionism—the essence of it is you believe in a Jewish homeland, um, and home. And this is again. The thing, the Balfour Declaration in 1917 promised a Jewish homeland. It doesn't, technically speaking, if you want to think like a lawyer, it doesn't promise a Jewish state. Now, again, as I say, I'm going to say this a lot of times today. Uh, it can be debated that where uh, Jewish uh, leaders thinking of a state as early as 1917, I think yes. Some people think no. Um, some people think they, uh, the, the the decision to go for a Jewish state only came around about 1942. I, I don't think so. I think it came earlier. But regardless, the point is they wanted a homeland. Now, the question for many of them was, one is, how do you get there? And the second is, how should it look? For example, now, this is one guy called uh, Borokov. Now, what he said is, uh, Israel has to be socialist. Why? Because from a Jewish perspective, uh, he, was an, you know, he was a socialist, so he didn't really believe in the the religious thing necessarily, but from the cultural Jewish perspective, not a religious decree. He said that um, I believe in socialism, but, and socialism means uh, one of the things is about uh, how do you control uh, the means of production. And what happens in non-Jewish countries is that the Jews are always kept out there. They're not allowed to control the means of production, right? Everybody else can, but Jews are treated as different. This is, um, they're, they're, they're victims. They're not allowed to participate in the national sphere. Therefore, we need a, a Jewish country which should be run along socialist lines. And that is how he, he in a way, married socialism with uh, Zionism, nationalism. Now, it actually makes perfect sense when you think of it that way. Although normally we think of socialism as internationalist and uh, nationalism as uh, particularist. <clears throat> in his case, because Zion, because Jews were... Uh, targeted and kept away, he says. Well, in this case, these two actually fit uh, because we're not we're not allowed to be part of the international sort of socialist movement. We'll have our own socialist movement, and if that makes it a national socialist movement, so be it, right? So that's one sort of thing. Now, labor Zionism, it's not as left wing as perhaps Borokov would have wanted. Labor Zionism is basically like a social democracy type of thing, which Israel was until the mid seventies. And so that's, again, this is after you have the state, how do you run it? Now, another form of Zionism I can talk about is the revisionist Zionism, which is, again, a very popular thing. It's considered sort of like right wing or whatever you want to call it. It's a little more complex, but for now, let's just keep it simple. Let's not, um, like I said, otherwise we'll be here for a whole year. Revisionist Zionism, for them, they were a little more um, militant. A little, They had a sense of urgency in terms of getting Jews out of Europe into uh then Palestine, the mandate, the British mandate, uh, mandatory territory of Palestine. And they were not scared of using violence necessarily. Now, there, there are several reasons for this. One is they sort of, like Jabotinsky, for example, uh, uh, he had this uh, fondness for the British, but he also 
saw them as obstacles. It's, it's an odd balance. Now, the reason is for this is that they realized that the British were uh, preventing uh, Jewish immigration into Palestine. So they were against it. At the same time, they realized that without British protection in the mandate, the Arabs would have a free hand to come and just massacre the Jewish population there. So they needed the Jewish good, uh, the British goodwill as well. So they have this like delicate dance they're doing there. So he wanted uh, the British uh, to train uh, Jews. Uh, he tried to petition this uh, in, even as far back as World War One, so that they can take care of themselves. Because ultimately, he realized that only force will keep uh, Jews safe, because Jews were attacked uh, by Arabs uh, back in the day. Uh, it's not a phenomenon from the 1930s or 40s. It started like way back uh, in the early 1900s or maybe even earlier. I would not say that was an, uh, those attacks were necessarily nationalist inspired. Uh, they might have been simply like burglars, robbers, because you know if you see a rich Jewish house, attack it. It might have been as simple as that. The national element comes in later. But regardless, Jews needed protection. And if the British were not keen on protecting or didn't really care about it, somebody had to do it. And so, so that is the revisionist sort of more militant sort of Zionism. Uh, you'll see that uh, groups that splintered from this. Uh, we'll talk about the Lehi, for example. Uh, in English, we call it the Stern Gang. Um, or the uh, Etzel, or in English, we call it Irgun. Um, now, they were more militant. Uh, and in fact, there's another uh, group which lasted only for three years between 1930 and 1933, uh, led by Abba Ahimeir, for example, called the Habiri And they were closer to what one might call terrorists. Now, again, terrorism is a loaded political word, depends on several things uh, in terms of uh, who are you targeting and all these sorts of things. But regardless, uh, these were far more militant, whereas the idea of labor Zionists like Ben-Gurion was by and large to cooperate. Again, this is not so simple because in 1939, when the British White Paper comes uh, and people ask Ben-Gurion, what do you want to do? The British are uh, prohibiting immigration into Palestine, even though the, now there is clear evidence that Hitler is persecuting them. So he said, and you know, he said, I'm going to fight the Germans with the British as if there is no white paper, and I'm going to fight the British uh, against the white paper to try and get uh, more immigration into Palestine as if there are no Germans. I have to fight them both, but I have to play this game. Um, at the end of the day, it's better for me that England wins than Germany wins. So there's a lot of balancing there, uh, even among these sorts of things. Another form of Zionism, if you want to call it that, you can call it diaspora Zionism, which is Jews in America, for example, uh, Brandeis is the Louis Brandeis is one of the you know great examples of this. Where he said, "Look, I don't have to come to Israel. I can believe in a Jewish homeland, a Jewish nation state, also, without actually moving there myself." And so the joke about American uh, Zionism uh, and diaspora Zionism, if you want to call it that, is exactly this: What is American Zionism? They say it's where when one Jew pays another Jew, so that a third Jew can uh, move to Israel. So the American guy. <laughs> So the American guy will give money to the uh, Yeshuv, the movement in Israel uh, or then Palestine, uh, so that they can support the movement of Jews from, say, like Poland or Russia or somewhere to uh, come and uh, live in Israel or Palestine, as I said. Because this costs money. You have, they, they come here and immigration was controlled. Uh, there were quotas uh, and you have to prove that you can support yourself. And so the, the Americans said, hey, look, we don't want to go there because we don't feel as persecuted. And this is a debate between Israel and the diaspora to this day, uh, relations. Um, because 
remember the, one of the things many people says yeah sure we felt safe in germany until 1933 and we felt safe in france uh, and then suddenly what happened the pogrom started the only place a jew can be safe and this is over with 2000 years of experience we can say the only place we can be safe is in our own country this is what israelis will say uh, many israelis will say at least yeah so just one question i think about when it comes to american uh... Jews and Zionism in general in America, or I don't even know if it should be called Zionism or not. I think there is always this dual loyalty accusation on American Jews, right? It, it's it's a serious issue. I remember even uh, like a conservative, like a proper conservative Jewish commentator like Ben Shapiro always has to clarify. And I see you know Ben Shapiro doing the overdoing at times, the whole I love America spiel all, all the time. Uh, and uh, it, it's a major issue. So I just wanted to take an offshoot from that. So, so how are the relationship, you know, what is the relationship between, you know, let's say Zionists in Israel and the Jews, let's say outside, uh, outside Israel. So how are their relationships? Are they, are they, uh, uh, I mean, cordial uh, or, you know, has, uh, to say, has the left infiltrated uh, in a major way in that relationship too? See, the thing is, if you live in Israel, it's difficult not to be a Zionist. Now, you might be a little more on the left, meaning that you might, and uh, you'll notice that in Israel, the left and the right, by and large, I'm not talking about the far left or the far right, but by and large, they seem to agree on like a, a basic core sort of um, agenda when it comes to say the Arab question, the Palestinian question. And this is one of the reasons why in, the, in you know, Israel, we, you know, there were like two or three elections and uh, the Arabs basically said, what difference does it make whether left or right wins? Uh, there's not gonna be, it's not gonna affect us much. The Palestinian question will not be resolved. So there is, so most Israelis, again, like I said, there are Israelis who are not Zionists and, there are, and that's another, we can get to that also. I'm having so many caveats today. Like every time I keep saying, let's get to that, let's get to that. But this should show you how complex this is. And you cannot have like paint the whole, you know, even just like the, a small country like Israel with one paintbrush, it's just very difficult. Uh, with one brush, it's hard. Um, there are some people, uh, but the, the question is a scope in the sense, if you are going to have uh, Palestine as a separate state, what are the boundaries? That's where the d disputes are. But the, the idea that a Jewish state should exist, if you're living in Israel, and if you, unless you're like a right-wing, uh, not right-wing, sorry, let's call it, a religious, for, a radical extremist, whatever you want to call it, you are a Zionist, usually, because you believe in the Jewish state. Now, there are very few people, there are some Jews, um, radical, very, very religious Jews, um, who don't believe that Israel should exist, because they feel that uh, Israel should be created by the Messiah. Now, there is a, a, a kind of Zionism called religious Zionism. So that's different. There are religious people who say, look, yes, Israel should be, uh, is the promised land and we should wait for the Messiah. But how do we know um, what God's plans are? In the sense, maybe, you know, sending us uh, leaders in that, uh, in, in that period, in the 1890s, in the early 1900s, maybe that was uh, God's way of uh, establishing Israel. So, you know, it's not like uh, somebody comes in with an ID card saying, hey, listen, I'm your Messiah. I will create Israel for you. So how do you know? So there are religious people who believe that Israel should exist, but then there are some very hardcore sort of um, Jewish people who 
don't like Neto Carta is one group, for example, who don't believe Israel should exist. So, but yeah, but that's like a fringe of a fringe. So it's not many, but in Israel, you're generally a Zionist. With America, what happens is that you are loyalty. Now, see, this is again why Israelis will say, uh, and again, I generalize when I say this, but still, the, 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 let me put it this way. The criticism of the diaspora is this, that you are never seen as part of that host country, no matter how comfortable you are. And there's no doubt that um, Jews in America have done well for themselves in medicine, in law, in entertainment, in all kinds of professions, right? Um, and yet, this whole question of dual loyalty. Now, the simple question is, do you see the same question being asked of, say, a Protestant German who came only 20 years ago or 30 years ago to the US of dual loyalty? No, nobody says, maybe you are a, a German spy. Nobody says that. Yeah. So only the Jew, right? And okay, forget the. And here's the thing: forget white and Christian. Like even like, um, you take somebody like say from India or something. I'm not aware of anybody saying, you know, to uh, to the Indians uh, who have now become Americans to that crowd. Maybe you are really an Indian spy. No, that's you know. So the race, the religion, all these things, they matter only when the Jewish question comes up. And this yeah. is exactly what many people will say. See, America might treat you very well, but remember the, the fact that we're even talking about uh, a dual identity, this uh, dual loyalty thing, shows that you're not really one of them. No matter how many years you have uh, lived there, no matter that you were born, your grandparents were born, brought up there, no matter that you've served in the military and served in the legal services and the you know foreign ministry, you've really given everything, your life to this country. I do think. Honestly speaking, having lived in the U.S. for very long, I do think that American Jews really genuinely believe they're Americans. They also are Jewish, but they are genuinely American. I don't think uh, this is an act or uh, something. It's just that when you keep, when you keep getting asked, the topic comes up. So that is there. So uh, the relations. What happens is when you live in New York or Chicago or wherever else, uh, California, whatever. Your priorities change. Your uh, your nature, uh, the way you look at the world changes. When you live in Israel, it's different. Um, the question for uh, for um, Jews in America, for example, uh, the security is not as much of a problem as it is in Israel. So these you know, these different priorities the, uh, these uh, create different worldviews, and that's where there are definitely disputes between the two. But here's one thing I will tell you. It is interesting to note that regardless how much they disagree with each other, American Jews still feel an obligation to have a position on Israel. Like if you're an American Jew, you, you know, and again, not everybody, of course, there are many ill-informed people that's like normal, but there's still the sense that I should know something about Israel. And that, that remains a, referring, a referent in their lives. So in that sense, like even if they disagree, they're still attached to this, to the idea of Israel, if not the state of Israel itself. Uh, I get it. I, I kind of understand the conundrum. Also, I, I, I get reminded of uh, who was that Ignatieff, right? Who who wrote that book, How the Jews Became White Folks, and he actually talks about a lot of uh, problems the Jews faced when they in the early years in America, and it was, uh, I mean, constant anti-Semitism. And if you ask me. I'm not saying it's exactly anti-Semitic all the time, 
but a lot of times you know especially in the far left circles when jews are asked these questions about uh, dual loyalty no it's not in the far right this question is always asked from the far left nowadays about dual loyalty to american jews and you know what i found very interesting here the left wing especially the far left i thought nationalism meant nothing for them right it was a fiction it meant nothing but on the jews it's very interesting it's always the question is raised where does your loyalty lie where why where are you loyal to i'm like hello you can't be you know hypocritical i thought you guys did not believe in nationalism you guys are far left wingers right then why are you questioning whether somebody else is loyal to america or not whether they are or not should not even matter to you right it, it's a philosophical no go zone for you yeah and the thing is one more thing i, I would i want to point out is like uh, how the jews became white for example this sort of question see one thing hitler does do is he makes it difficult to be openly anti-semitic like in the past because you look at like intellectuals like very famous physicists or historians or whatever in the 1930s it was very easy to say ah you know jews they are inferior it's not a big deal that's just like normal after world war 2 it becomes a lot more difficult to say that there's this stigma you have to appear in a certain way so what happens is it shifts the argument becomes about class all of a sudden right and they said well you know it's because they're not educated properly um they don't uh you know speak english as well they speak with a thick german accent or they wear weird clothes they used to wear in poland 50 years ago they don't fit in in that um, you know cosmopolitan sort of environment and of course when it comes to israel it's of this double standards i mean the human uh, un for example human rights commission it's well with countries like pakistan saudi arabia all these sorts of you know somalia all these sorts of countries and guess what israel has like 600 resolutions against them and like one or something against iran or something for example right and so this is so uh, there's uh, alan dershowitz he, uh, he writes that he says it is anti-semitism but because it's cleverly disguised in these arguments of like international law and uh, class and these sorts of other things uh, so you can't out, you know they don't come out right and say i hate you because you're jewish he says fine i'm just going to call it a different name it's a, a judeopathy he calls it and yeah. it's essentially the same thing it's you know you you just now you realize you can't call me a jew and hate me so now you're going to say oh but israel does this uh, and you know it doesn't matter everybody else does this but israel should not do this yeah i i i get it so so let's uh, let's cover this aspect now so what do you think is the state of zionism in current day israel and um, when i say current day israel obviously i mean the israeli society today and uh, uh how how are they dealing with uh, because see if you honestly ask me it's not that it was not there in the past but especially now in the post social media world a lot of um, voices get amplified especially fringe voices yes. so even when there is a far left critique of uh, zionism and maybe the mainstream center left may not be as anti semitic i'm not saying the center left is not anti semitic i think there are a lot of anti semitism in the center left too and obviously in the right wing too there is a lot of anti semitism in the right wing too but that is like you know the anti semitism of the right wing is out and out jew hatred that, that's all they do they're like your jews they have that jesus problem with them and they say we hate you so yes. it's like that right there is very there, there it is very clear but the the left wing anti semitism is very cow so what is the status of zionism in today in in terms of modern israel which is a democracy whether people like it or not it is a democracy 
It is. Um, before I answer that question, remind me if I forget the question, but let me just, you made a, you, you said that the Jesus question, the Jesus problem, the Jesus issue, you said something like that. And I think that's very true. Like I tried to understand anti-Semitism for the longest time. Um, it just made no sense to me. It's like, why would you just randomly pick up people and say, I hate you? You know, like, it's not like these people, you know, have been a nuisance or, you know, wherever you see Jewish uh, existence, uh, I'm particularly familiar with Jews in Germany and Spain, but in other places also, they have contributed a lot to the local uh, culture and uh, local economy. And so why would you hate these guys? It never made sense to me until one day one professor said very clearly to me, he says, if you don't understand it as basically that they are held uh, to be responsible for the, you know, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, then you will not understand. I said, that makes no sense. I mean, you know, whether Jesus existed or not is one debate some people have. But even if the, you know, the Bible is 100% true, like it happened 2000 years ago, how can you possibly? But, you know, there is that line, his blood be on, uh, his blood be on us and our children forever, right? There is that anti-Semitic line. And if you look at early Christians, I mean, I'm, I'm going back as far back as like Ambrose and all these people, like way back, early 400s. Yeah, you see anti-Semitism even there. It's not like you don't have to wait until the Middle Ages, the Crusades, for example. The Crusades, you know, they say, okay, yeah, the Christians in 1094, the first Crusades, they go to, uh, quote unquote, liberate Jerusalem from the Muslims, right? But guess what they do? As they march through Europe, they keep killing Jews because they want to uh, purify Europe for Christianity and yeah. take. So we don't have to wait in a thousand. Ambrose is very anti-Semitic, even as 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 uh, late uh, as uh, what do you call it? as far back as the late three hundreds and the early four hundreds. You see that. So then, I'm right now. I'm um, I'm just started working on uh, anti-Semitism or at least anti-Jewishness at least uh, before Christianity. It's an interesting thing. I've just started like literally like a few days ago. So I will expand my knowledge on that. Now, back to your question, which is completely <laughs> different. Uh, you asked me, what is the status of Zionism in Israel today? The thing is, there is one group of people who think that the purpose of Zionism has been achieved. The, the purpose of Zionism was what? To create a Jewish state. Well, there is a Jewish state now. And whether you like it or not, it's not going anywhere. It's a powerful state. It is the, it's a regional power. And it is not going to be wiped out anytime soon. So they feel, okay, we, we're done with Zionism. Now let's move on. So there is that group, definitely. Uh, but the majority of the Israeli public is center-right. Um, and they feel that the process is not over. And honestly, I think this is a better uh, understanding of Zionism. Because if you read Ben Gurion's diaries, which I actually did uh, a couple of months ago, he sees Zionism as a process. He says, first of all, it's not about just creating the state. It's also about creating a state and then making sure it lives up to our Jewish heritage ideals. And so it's a continuous process. And he says, we want Israel, Israeli democracy, democracy to be a participatory democracy. Uh, the, the government and the people, uh, there should not be a hierarchy, it should be like a flat thing. And that they have really achieved in Israel. You see, I mean, how many places do you call uh, the prime minister by the nickname? Bibi, for example, Netanyahu, right? Yeah. That's, it's a, so in Israel, the hierarchy being, it might not be perfectly flat, but it's pretty much almost perfectly flat. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And it is participatory. It is possible for the, you know, uh, a mechanic as a... Uh, Yaakov Katz, uh, editor of uh, Jerusalem Post, he writes in his uh, book about uh, Israeli um, um, startup, uh, startups and all these sorts of things. He says, um, uh, 
mechanic working on an F-15 uh, who understands the plane and because he's a mechanic for the plane, he can very easily criticize like, you know, a kernel or something. You know, if he says, okay, this is what we have to do. He's like, this will not work because the F-15 has these issues, these limitations and this, and it's perfectly okay. Nobody's going to say, are kernel se baat kar rahe like, you know, mein rahe, tu mechanic hai, what do you know? That, this doesn't happen. Right. So, <clears throat> Ben Gurion wanted that sort of stuff. So, if you look at that sort of approach of Zionism as a living, continuously evolving process, Zionism cannot be over. But, as I said, I mean, if you, if uh, we stick to that uh, basic definition and not add all fancy, um, you know, uh, additional properties, uh, characteristics, like should it be socialist or should it uh, should it be achieved through force or uh, through negotiation? If we forget that and just remember the core goal of a Jewish state, the homeland, um, I think that the um, Zionism, most Israelis you will find are Zionists, left and right. This is the one thing that for all the differences the left and right have about Netanyahu or about uh, how uh, what a Palestinian state should look like. Some people might say, we don't want a Palestinian state. We gave them Jordan in 1921. Let them go there. Some people will say, no, 67 boundaries are fair. Some people will say something close to 67 boundaries. Maybe the 2000 agreement uh, Ehud Barak had offered something. Like These differences might be there, but not like pretty much very, very few people will ever be anti-Zionist um, in Israel. All right. So I have two more questions of you and then I'll take uh, the live chat viewers questions because four people have already asked very good questions. So we have four questions to deal with. Uh, so one thing I had written down was that this whole one state, two state solution thing um, so how much of it uh, is also connected to Zionism? Obviously, when we say one state, two state, so explain to the people what is this whole one state, two state conundrum and why is it so connected to Zionism too? Okay. Now, the thing about, um, one of the things you will notice about the Zionists, the issue of the Jews in, um, who lived in uh, mandatory Palestine is that they were very practical people, pragmatic people. Now, they can insist like, uh, and see, and there are complications like when you say God promised us this land, do you mean the kingdom of Judah? Do you mean that promise uh, where he says from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates? Which part do you mean? So Israel, the Holy Land is promised in different uh, parts and at different times there are different boundaries and this is a debate. So the Jews said, okay, first that's one issue. The second issue is this, that we have to be practical. If we keep asking for everything, we'll get nothing. So we are willing to compromise. So in 1921, see 1917, what happens the Balfour Declaration? They say we'll give a Jewish homeland in mandatory Palestine. In 1921, the British partition, about 75-77% of the mandate, they cut off and create the uh, Emirate of Jordan or Transjordan as it was called then. In 49 or something, it becomes Jordan. And so the Jews are like, okay, uh, so they said fine... We get only 22-23% of the land, fine, we're okay with that. Let's compromise, let us get a country at least so that, you know, we're willing to deal with this. And then what happens is the in 19, uh, the Arabs are like not happy with this. It's like, no, you guys don't belong here, get out, all that sort of stuff. And then Arabs have uh, the Arab revolt of 1936. So the British, uh, in their negotiations with the Arabs, they talked to them and they said, okay, this is clearly a problem. And these guys clearly can't live side by side. So let's partition this again. So that 22-23% 22, 22, that was left, 
that again should be partitioned and this idea was floated uh, officially uh, in 1937 uh, early uh, 1937 uh, in the peel commission now you don't have to remember the names just the, the idea is that the uh, of partitioning again was created um and that is like into two states which is uh, palestine and israel uh, an arab state and a jewish state call it what you want now for me because of my own you know my reading and my understanding of history and the politics of this time and everything i still say like you know when, uh, i use a different terminology i say if you say you know because i say let us not forget that jordan was already taken away and you're having another state so you, you know so the two state solution for me like is you know already jordan is there and there's no palestine right that that becomes a third state for all intents and purposes if you look at it historically but since nobody uses this terminology to keep things simple and not to confuse people who are not as familiar with the history i'll, I'll stick to the main term, mainstream terminology of saying two states which is a, a palestinian state today and israel a jewish state now what happens is again here we have gaza on one side and the west bank or as israelis would call it judea and samaria on the eastern side of the country and as you know gaza is controlled by hamas and fatah controls uh, the west bank so again we don't know if that's going to be one state or that's going to like fall apart and become two states like pakistan bangladesh happened because these things are not easy when they're separated and two two different kinds of people are ruling uh, these areas but the the what has happened is so the two state is like you create a, a, a you find some sort of negotiation you create palestine you create israel uh, i mean israel is there you, you create a palestinian state and you have a two state solution that's what that is. a one state solution basically says look there's so many jews now living in the west bank that it is difficult to separate them from um the west bank it'll create a whole bunch of hardships uh to uproot so many there's about 600,000 jews in the, in uh, beyond the green line as they call it the, the terminology for it right 600,000 most of them half of them are uh, around uh, jerusalem the suburbs um uh, which has really expanded since 1948 when israel was created um and then there are others the settlements all across judea and samaria uh, primarily in area c but uh, other places also you know they say ki to uproot them creates so much misery and it is difficult um and then there are questions of like okay if israel allows for a palestinian state will it will it allow this uh, potential palestinian state to um, maintain an army have independent foreign relations because see if you create an arab state today and they just turn around and go to iran or to some other like you know turkey and they become a thorn in israel's side israel will not want to allow that so what they will say is look you guys can have your own economy you can have your own foreign relations all that sort of stuff but you're not allowed to have an army a police force yes but not an army why because you start allowing say iranian troops to be stationed in the west bank it's going to create a real problem for our security so we can't allow to do, allow you to do this so but these sorts of relations are the sovereign right of any normal country so these so the argument comes since palestine cannot be a truly sovereign country maybe there should be just one country like the you know uh, combine the two uh, there is no arab state but it's like a, a, a jewish slash arab one state uh, like israel palestine hyphenated the problem with this comes is that if you do that as of today i think the arabs would have like 51 or 52% of the population so then the only way a jewish identity can be protected is through basically apartheid 
there's no other way that a Jewish identity can be protected because in elections, the majority will have that demographic advantage. And again, going back to the beginning of our podcast, as I, as I reminded, as I said, the, the only reason uh, these people had for a Jewish state was that they were not allowed to be Jewish anywhere else. So if you give that up today, again, in, for the sake of uh, Israel slash Palestine, like one country, again, there is not a single state where you can be Jewish and safe. The whole point is to protect not just the safety. That's one thing, of course. But the second thing is also to uh, what do you call it? protect their culture, their heritage. It's the only Jewish country in the world. How do you protect the culture and heritage? Like anywhere else, like see in America, for example, yes, maybe the anti-Semitism is on the rise in Europe and America in the last few years. That's one thing. And yeah, maybe that there will be some religious Jews in America who will uh, maintain their culture, or whatever. But there's a huge danger of assimilation. Many American Jews have become more American and less Jewish. They don't know much about Judaism um, and they sort of don't mind visiting a church with their friends or, you know, or actually not doing anything, just going to a bar and, you know, having like a bacon uh cheeseburger, whatever, these sorts of things. And they, they lose their heritage through assimilation. It's what in India you might call like, you know, what we'd call like deracination or something in a way, right? So they become less Jewish in that traditional sense. So um, Israel, by virtue of being a Jewish country from the state perspective where you protect Shabbat, kosher and Jewish ideas and values and uh, institutions, it's the only way you can maintain the Jewish thing. That's why the one-state solution is just, uh, in my opinion, is just absolute lunacy. It's basically suicide if anybody uh, uh, supports that sort of thing. And it's a backdoor. Basically, what is the Arab objection or the Muslim objection or however, the Palestinian objection? They say that we don't want a Jewish state, right? And this is a backdoor to wiping out the Jewish state. Because it can't be a Jewish state once it's a one country. Yeah, I, I kind of get that. Uh, get that uh, logic. So one last question before I go into the audience once was, so tell me the relationship between Zionism and colonialism and imperialism. That was my last question for you. That's, that's a very good question because uh, this is a very standard accusation you hear um, leftists hurl at Israel. Usually, you know, I experience very poorly informed uh, people. Um, they accuse uh, Zionists, the Yishuv, uh, of colonialism or imperialism because they are they say the first thing is that the argument is they're not from here they come here they take this land and they colonize it my question is let's just stick to the definition of colonialism when the british came to india and colonized india it was for the sake of extracting wealth from india and sending it to england when the jews came to israel where were they sending the wealth to just out of curiosity <laughs> right that's one thing the second thing, they, they, they say, oh, no, no, but let's, we, that's a different kind of colonialism, settler colonialism, uh, where the, the, you are trying to take the land itself and uh, cleanse the land of the native population. Uh, this is, again, assuming that the, your, the assumption here is, again, that the Jews don't belong to that land, which mm. the Jews will vehemently deny, saying, look, we were kicked out by the Romans uh, and we were kept out by the subsequent rulers. Uh, it is, uh, but our origins are there. It is very clear. That is the Jewish claim. Um, but in um, <clears throat> sorry, what was I saying? The um, 
settler colonialism the issue comes these guys will say is that you want to uh, get rid of the native population and here the, again the problem comes when you look at settler co uh, colonialism like say america for example right that's uh, one standard example of settler colonialism the british went there they took the land from the natives and they created again for the service of england now it, it just so happens that because of various reasons these settlers decided to create a country of their own but again it was yeah. in service of the crown and so again my question comes if these jews come and say that uh, if you want to look at them as colonials where are the, where is the wealth extraction what are they sending it back to in service of whom because i can tell you one thing that the the british the french the germans the russians the poles the italians the spaniards the portuguese none of these people that the jews are their own people so there's no wealth extraction uh, for their benefit at all mm -hmm. yeah right the on, the only reason you might use uh, you can you will have to find a different word you can't use colonialism there that's the first my first point uh, fair enough then comes you you might want to challenge this argument like do the jews belong here or not now now one argument is that you know surely there has to be some sort of statute of limitations otherwise we can't keep going back forever right uh, jews were kicked out but then things have changed now here uh, the importance of the land is very clear uh, for from a cultural perspective for the jews because when the british offered them uh, it's called the uganda plan in 1903-1904 um, and the uganda plan was actually about giving a part of kenya Okay, the names it's called Uganda plan. <laughs> Never, that's British geography, imperial geography for you, um, and creating a Jewish state. Now, what happens? The Jews said, "No, no, no, no. We don't want this." Like there were some what we call territorialists who said, "Take it. Doesn't matter. Let's get a country and be done with it." And then some people tried to like create a middle ground by saying, first we'll take this country, then we'll give it up and go to Palestine later." But most of the people saw this as uh, not something that's feasible. And they said, "No, our land was promised to us by uh, by God. Uh, our forefathers lived there, and this is our land, and we can't accept anything else." So that shows a Jewish commitment, like uh, of a homeland. Even when they were offered something else, they said, "No, we will. We can't accept that." So it's not like they just wanted any land. Now, a, col a colonial power will. Like if uh, the British want to make inroads into India, they don't really care whether they, you capture Bombay or Calcutta. As long as it's profitable, they'll take whatever that comes. These guys were very specific. They could have taken Kenya. It's fertile land. It's better than the desert, definitely. Um, but they said, "Nay, this is important to us." And so you know, so they went for that specific land. It shows again that the Jewish connection to that land. Um, now, if you're an Indian and you get American citizenship, but uh, or whatever European citizenship, and you live outside, uh, but you let's say you maintain your religion, right? Now you, you might feel yes, today I live in Denmark and I'm Danish, but at the end of yeah. the day, when, when it comes to Hinduism, you're not going to look at the the Rhine and the Seine River outside, you know, across the border. You're going to think about Ganga, and uh, that will evoke that sentimentality in you, and that's what. Uh, is important. We have to keep that also in mind. Fair enough. I, I agree with you. I think that that sums up uh, it pretty well. Now let's go into audience questions. We're watching it live. By the way, I'm really impressed. <clears throat> Some really good questions. So I think the first two by Anam and Ramakrishnan can be clubbed together. So Anam was like, why do certain groups of Christians and Muslims become so paranoid about Jews? And Ramakrishnan has added a very specific question. Christopher Hitchens alluded to Jew hatred being intrinsic to Christianity due to the accusations of deicide, 
what is the view of Jews about Christians in this regard? So I, I, I can I think we can club both these questions together because they are kind of interconnected. So this Bolo. goes to uh, what you had briefly mentioned about the, the Jesus issue, right? Why is Christianity fundamentally anti-Semitic? It's because basically Christians see it as Jews killed their God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's as simple as that. And this is, you know, I mean, Christopher Hitchens, sure, but uh, this accusation has been made for hundreds of years. It's nothing new. And in fact, again, going back to Alan Dershowitz, who's written well on this, uh, I forget what book it is. Uh, I think it's Chutzpah. It's called Chutzpah. It's uh, in the late 90s, he wrote a book um, where he says, look, this easily, I, and he says, look, I'm not a scholar on this, but even I can very easily trace this straight up to Martin Luther, who was one of the big, the Protestant thing, right? He says, and, yeah. and we can go further back, but, you know, the purpose of his book is not about anti-Semitism specifically. It's about uh, American Jews. Uh, so he says, I'm not going to get into it, but just to give you a quick example, and he gives Martin Luther as an example. He says, anti-Semitism is inherent in that. Yeah. So, so the, now, what is the Jewish view of Christianity? I mean, let's face it, Jews never had the power, and to this day, they don't have the power of taking on Christianity that way. Where is 14 million Jews versus like what one and a half billion Christians? So if you're looking at it from a very sort of materialist sort of like a conflict kind of scenario, that's mm -hmm. not feasible. Um, that said, to be fair to Christians, th there is a certain group of Christians who now really like Israel for their own benefit, of course, which is that yeah. they think that when all the Jews go back to Israel, the Messiah will come. That is a sign of the end times, and for that yeah. religious reason, yeah, uh, evangelical yeah. Christians actually hardcore evangelical right so there is that also um i mean i don't i am honestly surprised uh, and maybe it might just be because it is not feasible but i am honestly surprised by the the lack of any sort of hostility or ill will uh, among jews for christians or muslims which is like unbelievable uh, they might have issues with like specific countries like they'll say like okay uh, the Labour Party in England is anti-Semitic, okay? But they, they're not going to say all Anglicans are anti-Semitic. They don't have that. And honestly, I, I do find them, uh, the Jews, a lot more tolerant than I am about some of some of these issues, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. I struggle. I ask them, how is it that you have moved on? Uh, I don't understand that. But they have. Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite open-minded and tolerant people. So this actually question is very interesting. This one is asked by Karan. Karan asks, could it be argued that the Jewish persecution that we discussed earlier on is also about Jews being inflexible? Don't the Muslims also argue that they are persecuted because they aren't allowed to practice their religion fully in foreign countries? Interesting question. I See, actually, it sounds like an interesting question, but the answer is actually for once. The first time in this podcast is actually quite simple. The <laughs> fundamental difference is that with Jews, they will do their thing and they leave you out of it. They're not going to come and convert you. They're not going to come and tell you, you have to do, do things this way. You can sit right next to a Jew and have your uh, bacon and he'll just not, not touch it. But, you know, um, and he will not, they will not try to have like, Jews will not say, okay, we need a Jewish holiday. And, you know, they will not come and say, Yom Kippur needs to be a holiday in India. No, they'll do their thing. They will have their holidays. They will do their thing and mind their own business. With Islam and Christianity, they are universalist religions. Which means for them, they think the whole world can be Christian, the whole world can be Muslim. Jews are particular. They don't convert. And that is one of the biggest reasons why Jews can get along quite easily in most places if the, other, the host uh, culture is willing to accept them. Now, yes. in a country like India, Hindus, you know, if you don't bother us, nobody cares what you do. And that's why they, they live for like 
for I know it depends on uh, which group of Jews, but uh, some group uh, you'll say easily two thousand years at least, and there's been no yeah. problem. The only anti-Semitism I found in India are by uh, European Christians who came to India during the era of imperialism, or by uh, Indian Muslim rulers, uh, who, and the Jews ran away and took protection under Hindu kings uh, in that locality, in that uh, region at that time. But absolutely, has not had a problem because they don't. You know, they say you mind your business, I mind my business, and Jews are pretty good with that. And so that's why I would say that uh, when when Jews say we want to practice our religion, that's fine. Why? Because they're not asking you to convert. They're not asking you to make any special accommodation for them. They they just want to be left alone to do their thing, which is usually not the case with the Muslim populations. It's always the next step. Yeah, and they, and something I that, need to. They want uh, that minaret. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, they want that minaret, and then they want that loudspeaker. You know, just always this, uh, always this uh, theocratic creep, as I call it. Yeah. So, so I'll tell you something very interesting. With the Jews, it's the complete opposite. In fact, it's very hard to become a Jew. It's like they make it even harder for you to enter that sect, as if it's like this elite, you know, Bandraga club where oh, a crore ka membership hai, you can't enter. Are you good enough to enter? <laughs> it's like One of my friends. One of my friends in the U.S. he converted. He married a, a, a Jewish woman, and he's a PhD student. Uh, one of my friends, and he said he wanted to convert. It took seven years. You know, it's not like you come and you you recite some uh, you know prayer and you're done. They're like the guy first first time he goes, they're like, yeah, no thanks, we're not interested. And the guy's like, not interested. I don't understand. Like, what do you mean? He's like, no, we we don't want you to convert. It's okay, thank you. And he's like, hey, what the hell? So he went back like the second or third time he had to go. The third time or something. Finally, he's like, okay, you want to convert? Yeah. Like, why? He's like, well, my wife's Jewish. Like, so what? You are converting. Your wife's Jewish already. She's fine. Why do you want to convert? Then he's like, nay, because you know, I, you know, I am religious and I think this makes sense. Really? What have you read? The guy's like, um, like nay, I've heard. It's like heard nay. You have to go read it. So the guy goes reads the Bible, comes back, and then the guy's like. Okay, which Bible did you read? He goes, no, but this is English. You don't know Hebrew, so you don't know the translation is good or not. You have to learn Hebrew. Like I said, seven And I mean, you know, he wasn't in any rush. He took his time, and he was genuine. But it's not easy. They don't want converts. Yeah. Uh, I I get it, and uh, this is actually very true. Most people don't realize. So Sasidharan Kartikeyan has a very specific question. So he says, "Can you ask Jaydeep why Abraham Stern?" Wanted to make a pact with Hitler. Was it only his skepticism towards the British, or it was more than that? Uh, yeah. Okay. The first thing is, I think some of these people were um, opportunistic um, because the thing is, the question is, how do you look at the the situation? He's referring to uh, Lehi, um, um, where. Uh, uh, a certain group of uh, Jews uh, during World War II decided that they are going to side with, uh, not side with, that's too strong a word, but take help from Hitler to fight the British. Now, what is the context of this? I, I very briefly explain. I'm happy that this gives me an opportunity to explain again. The British in 1936, when the Arab revolts happened, they stopped immigration basically to, uh, or they limited drastically. They said 75,000 people over five years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and after that. Permission from the Arabs, uh, if more have to come, and they said okay. it, they used a term called economic capacity. The problem with economic capacity was that the Jewish areas were more capable and the Muslim areas were less capable. But when you take the average, the capacity goes down, which means 
less immigration can occur so the jews were like look if we can take care of these people why does it matter that the our neighbor is poor we can take care so and the british are basically to be honest the british were just playing their game they wanted to protect their oil there's a, a pipeline from uh, iraq to uh, haifa the baghdad the whatever uh, mosul mosul haifa pipeline they wanted to protect the oil supplies it was straight up uh, real politic for them uh, although there is an argument to be made that uh, regardless of british foreign uh, policy or mandatory policy uh, there is uh, there was some antisemitism among on the ground uh, among british officers serving in, uh, in the in the mandate not all but many so this is uh, and what happens is for example um the riots the jews many jews get killed and this is when the jews are warning the british look this is going to be a problem you have to protect us and they say hey, don't worry about it uh, and then the riots occur and many jews get killed and so basically many jews say look the british are being particularly um careless about our interests our safety these sorts of things the white paper keeps promising the arabs like no 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 don't worry we will not create a jewish state and then they'll come to us and say no we will create a jewish state so they say they're playing this double game so they don't trust the british which i don't blame them but this is how that goes now from the perspective of palestine in that narrow sort of in this context if somebody says let's see like when when boss went and said look i want to uh, get help from the fascists right it's not because he is a nazi Subhash Chandra Bose, you know, he might have been an authoritarian, but that is that there's a difference between authoritarianism and uh, fascism, or uh, there's a difference between authoritarianism and Nazism. Regardless, and he was not that. Uh, in fact, you he thought Hitler was a crazy man. You can see in his uh, notes about him, "Bada pagal" he used to call Hitler. Uh, nonetheless, he said, "Look, I have to fight the British, and these are the only people who are capable of fighting the British." because indians at that point were not strong enough so he said fine train the british uh, train uh, indian soldiers to fight the british and other sorts of assistance and the same sort of thinking goes with abraham stern uh, he wanted that because uh, in the mandate this was a problem now what happens is the other side to give you the fuller picture is someone like ben gurin will say look we agree that the british are a nuisance they are a problem and to be fair in 45 uh, lehi and etsel and hagana which is the main jewish uh, movement uh, in the issue uh, in the mandate they unite for about a year or something against the british so it's not like the these guys love the british but ben gurion said look if we attack the british and the british say you know what i'm sick and tired of you guys whining all the time i'm on the side with the arabs we are screwed Yeah. because the population the jewish population in palestine needed protection from the british until they were able to take care of themselves mm. and that ability to take care of themselves was thrust upon them they were not completely ready but it was thrust upon them in 47 with the with the partition vote in the un in november 1947 until then these guys were they're they building up from 45 to 47 ben gurion had like he worked super hard extra hard to make sure that the jews would be ready to protect themselves from the inevitable war that would come he predicted this would happen but until then so someone like ben gurion would tell avraham stern bhai i get your anger against the british that they are not allowing immigration despite hitler killing the jews even then they are not allowing them to come they are not letting jews come to england despite the uh, genocide on the mainland i get your anger completely but if we go against the british yeah then the germans are definitely against us the british are also against us we can't fight everybody that practicality yeah. and this practicality is unparalleled i have never seen such a practical uh, political movement uh, 
in my life. I've studied quite a few of them. But this level of practicality that uh, the, the Yushuv leaders had is unbelievable. Yeah, uh, so it's good that you you know brought in an Indian example because the last two questions are <laughs> about India and uh, Israel. So I'm going to change the order. So I'm going to ask Aurindrajit's question first because I think Harsha's uh, question should be the last one where we end the discussion because it's an important question. So Aurindrajit asks, can you comment on why India antagonized Israel after independence? <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, I can tell you why they antagonized uh, the, the, them even before independence. There's actually a wonderful book I had reviewed also, um, uh, India's Israel Policy by this guy, Nicholas Blarell. Uh, mm -hmm. If you don't have the patience, you can read my review. But to summarize that review also, if you don't have the patience for that also, <laughs> is, that, uh, is that, first of all, Gandhi's understanding of the Jewish situation came from his Christian friends. And that is you're already starting on the, on the wrong foot there. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, and this is something people don't understand. People say, oh, was Gandhi anti-Semitic? Some people ask. No, he wasn't anti-Semitic. He just didn't understand it. And yeah. he realized that he was, he he finally realized like like in 45, 46, hey, maybe maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe I'm my assumptions are wrong here. And at that point, like he had already said so much nonsense. And uh, there were many uh, Jews um, in America as well as in um, the in mandatory Palestine, who wrote uh, harshly about Gandhi, because Gandhi also wrote harshly about Jews, very impractical solutions like, you know, you must fall at Hitler's feet and these sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. But it shows, honestly, I, it shows Gandhi's, first of all, it shows his ignorance about the Jewish mm. situation. So true. And this is something that the Yeshu uh, sent Jews to try and educate him and to make him realize what the situation was. The second thing is, again, you, you might have a certain uh, political philosophy and it may or may not work in your country, but does not mean it has to work everywhere. This idea that, you know, Satyagraha has to work everywhere, that's not possible. Every, that, that you know, particular, particular uh, characteristics of every freedom movement, of every uh, revolution. So this has to be considered also, which Gandhi clearly didn't. So that's before the independence. After independence, there's always this fear, and I've never understood why, but there's always this fear that, like, you know, um, the Muslims will feel bad, and I've asked like people. I said, "Are you saying that the are you? Uh, if you say that the Muslims will feel bad, what you're really saying is Muslims are traitors, because they are not willing to go with the national interest. Their sentiment is above the national interest. So mm -hmm. anybody who says the Muslims will feel bad, and that's why we have to uh, side with the Palestinians instead of the Israelis, they're implying indirectly that Muslims are traitors, that they can't look at the Indian national interest, that their own community interests are above the Indian national interest. So." This is the easiest reason. And India treated Israel really badly. Um, the real question is, like, why did Israel put up with it? Um, initially, I would say it's because, you know, like, the Israeli economy, Israel is a new country, you know, like, aid from anywhere would help if aid was possible at all, that sort of stuff. Uh, diplomatic assistance, all these things. Today, Israel is in a very different position, of course. But uh, in the 50s and 60s, it was uh, not uh, so rosy in Israel. Um, there was, for example, there's one case, an Israeli president, I think he was flying uh, from Israel to Nepal and he was flying over India, of course, and they didn't allow the plane to land in Delhi. They, I think it landed in Calcutta and they didn't allow the president to step out of the plane. Uh, basically, they refueled the plane and sent it along to uh, Nepal. I think this was in 58 or something like that, around about that time. And uh, when uh, India had a food shortage, when the Israelis said, we're going to send grains, 
uh, Nehru asked them to please not stamp the Israeli, the menorah, the state symbol on the sacks of rice or whatever they were selling, grains they were selling. How nice. Yeah. So, I mean, like, yeah, they, I have no words for this. It's just like, just absolutely sh shoddy behavior in my opinion. But the only reason I can think of is that the uh, Indians felt or the Indian leadership felt that by being close to the Palestinians, perhaps they can negate Pakistan's Islam card and get closer to the OIC, for example, and uh, create sympathy among the Islamic nations, and that would hurt Pakistan. Now, if it worked, that would have really undermined Pakistan, I agree, but we all know it had no chance of working. Uh, and uh, in the sense, we, we saw, we see, we see the progression at, at no yeah. level, at no point can we say, well, India almost achieved this, but then last minute something happened. No, that no point was India taken seriously by the OIC, for example. Even membership was an issue. The Pakistanis, you know, even though Indians had more Muslims, India was still kept out of it. These sorts of things. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So one last question, and I think uh, we've touched upon this partially in uh, our podcast on nationalism and Hindu nationalism too. But Harsh has asked, what can the Hindutva movement learn from Zionism? Quite a lot of things. Now, see, again, uh, another kind of nationalism, um, Zionism that uh, we can talk about uh, is uh, cultural Zionism. Um, the people like uh, Ahad, uh, Ahad uh, Ha'am, um, his name was Asher Ginsburg, for example, where he said that, look, having a Jewish state is not enough unless the Jewish culture survives, the religion, the traditions survive. So uh, an atheistic state where Jews live is not enough. Uh, the, the point is for our civilization, Jewish civilization to thrive. That means you have to revive our traditions and our culture as well. So for him, Zionism was, yes, we want, like, you know, like I said, labor Zionism, the same way, right? They said we want uh, Israel and then it should be in a socialistic sort of pattern. Cultural Zionists would say <clears throat> we want a Jewish state, of course, because nowhere else can we achieve this. No other country allows us to do this. But once we have Israel, it has to focus on uh, our heritage, our culture, so that it can survive. Cultural Zionism. Now, Hindutva True. can definitely learn from that. Like, one of the things, even today, is, uh, is that most of us, we go straight into uh, engineering and medicine, you know, the typical Indian sort of things. And we always say, because our the Indian market is such, and we have these excuses. But I would like to remind you that despite all the persecution and the pogroms and all these sorts of things, that the, the Jews never stopped creating phenomenal um, philosophers and musicians and uh, these sorts of intellectual figures. Like Moses Mendelssohn, for example, Spinoza, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So the point is, even in the, that extreme situation where you're living in basically hostile territory, they still produce these people. So this argument that the Indian economy cannot sustain um, someone who studied Indian Hindu philosophy, I find that uh, no, I mean there is a there is a point to it, but I I think that something that people have to really consider like overcoming and getting past that sort of stuff. So in that sense, this the the Zionist sort of uh, emphasis that the, the, even atheists are are very committed to preserving a Jewish cultural heritage, whatever they might argue. True. What is the role of the rabbi? How much power a rabbi should have? Uh, that stuff they'll argue, but nobody's going to deny that. Nobody will say there shouldn't be a rabbi. So mm -hmm. in that sense, the Zionists have done a very good job of keeping their uh, Jewish culture alive. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, this is something I find weak although to be fair again it is improving it has improved over the last say 10 years that i have 
paid any attention to the Indian scenario. It has improved, but there's a long way to go, primarily because we are a much bigger country and a much bigger population. But this is something. The other thing is also, you'll notice, like, I'll give an example. Uh, for example, um, the Alta Lena was a crisis, uh, state crisis uh, about uh, who has power um, in um, Israel. Right after the formation of Israel, what happens is uh, a ship called the Alta Lena comes with weapons, and Menachem Begin, who is in charge of it, decides that um, you know he wants to distribute the weapons among his followers. And Ben Gurion says, "Look." Back in the day, I might have kept quiet, I don't know, but today Israel is formed. So you bring in weapons, you give it to the Israeli army and we will distribute it. Your men, my men, there's no such thing. We're all Israelis, we're all one. And, you know, and there was this, uh, um, it almost, there, there's a gunfight or something. But then there was this uh, belief, they said, look, no, Jews can't fight Jews. Jews should not do this to other Jews. This attitude was there. Now, is it always followed? No, of course not. That's an ideal sort of form. Uh, mm-hmm. Or for that matter, there's this, uh, uh, there's a saying. Uh, what is it? Uh, Israel, uh, uh, all Israel is uh, all Israel or all Jews are responsible for one another. This is brotherhood. This ties. These sort of this uh, common bond is there. He knows they have no such bonds. I mean, first of all, the whole caste business is like one chaotic mess, which I don't understand. But beyond that, also, whether you want to keep the caste system or modify the caste system or do away with it regardless the sense of a common hindu identity is like just very difficult to create the jews for all their differences and there are differences like the sephardim the ashkenazim the misahim there are these differences despite all that there is a sense that we are all one at the end of the day and that is the one thing we should learn preserve protect and um, spread our heritage our culture among ourselves, not not to proselytize, I'm saying. And the second part I'll say is that uh, the sense of oneness, that unity. Indians, we are so divided. And this is the history of India. Like, how did we get conquered? Because we supported the outsiders against our own people. Uh, I agree. In fact, uh, the one thing, see, one thing uh, before we wrap things up, I just wanted to make a few comments about the co- connection between Hindutva and Zionism. The biggest problem is that people don't realize somewhere down the line, I think, at a fundamental level, Judaism is still a monotheistic religion. And uh, and there is a difference between the fundamental building blocks of a Dharmic uh, uh, system and a Judaic uh, system. And that, that, I think, leads to a lot of uh, confusions. And uh, I don't think, I personally, we can take a lot of inspiration from uh, Zionism. But I think uh, Hindus eventually have will have to come up with their own system of creating a sense of unity. Because I think uh, it's not like early Judaism did not convert. Jews stopped yeah. converting. There's yeah. a huge difference. that So people get confused that Jews don't convert does not mean Judaism did not uh, allow conversions. There's a huge difference between the two. Right. Where in Hinduism, the conversion thing just does not scripturally come up in right. our brains. So right. there's a huge difference there. So I think when when it comes to a united uh, Hindu identity, like I always propose something like a three pronged system of mutual respect, reciprocity, and Krishna's ahinsa, not Mahavir's ahinsa and Gandhi's ahinsa. I'm not talking about those types of ahinsa. I'm talking about where if you slap me, I'll punch you. But yeah, I'm not going to go out of my way to look for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight. 
so i think we will have to work on it in a very different way because i think in terms of diversity i'm not talking about racial diversity i'm even talking about epistemic diversity at a, at a memeplex level we just have too much of diversity in india i know current india is very advaitin or very bhakti movement inspired but when we start you know really finding ourselves in the true sense intellectually i think we're going to see a lot of darshanas popping back up in india you might see uttar mimansa purva mimansa i mean i am there now i'm trying to revive charvak what are you going to do so we have to deal with that so in there so this is where i feel we can take inspiration from them but we'll have to work very strongly what we can do is where savarkar i think had a point was we can work with the democratic setup and there we can try to create a political union of hindutva while we have our social differences i don't know what do you think about it i think absolutely in fact i would say uh, in terms of like a, a blueprint for a political sort of uh, you know like mark darshak mark <coughs> mark darshak sort of thing it's exactly what uh, zionism in a way does israel is a democracy it has never that its democracy has never been threatened and it's not like the jews uh, did not have any differences in fact you will see differences from day one <clears throat> from the early moment of the state there were several constitutional crises and these sort of things but they resolved it through democratic means and same way uh, we can do the same thing through open debate and everything and of course like for all the similarities uh, i'm not see you can be very similar but you are not the same because if you're the same then you'd have the same label also the fact that you are two different labels means there is going to be some difference <clears throat> so of course i i'm not saying that jews and hindus are the same i am just saying that jewish uh, thinking might be closer to the hindu way of thinking than the christian and islamic way of thinking uh, in terms of cultural practices uh, then many mm-hmm. people realize that's all i'm saying and yes we are different but those differences are minuscule and at this point they are just so far ahead that we don't really need to concern ourselves with these minute points uh, unless we are scholars but from a political perspective whether it's relations with israel yeah, or whether it's the, uh, understanding uh, like how ben gurion and herzl and uh, all these people uh, mobilized uh, for their political cause in this sort of stuff we really don't need to you know bother ourselves with these minuscule differences at all yeah i agree with you all right i think it's time to wrap things up i uh, i have actually taken a little bit more of your time than i was supposed to but uh, that's how these questions are it's such a huge subject that we can never cover it in uh, you know even in 10 hours uh, to be very honest that that's how complicated it is so Absolutely. first of all yeah so jadeep uh, once again thanks for coming on the podcast it's always Thank a you. pleasure to talk to you man and let's see so let's wait for the response to this podcast let's see how people say and then maybe in the future we can you know dig deeper into specific areas of zionism or or judaism or or just israel in general and, and we can yeah. yeah so and we can do it so once again man thanks a lot for coming on the podcast fun talking you have very interesting topics in your podcast right uh, all right guys time to wrap things up you know the drill if you like what i'm doing over here please subscribe to the podcast like the video share share your comments too on youtube uh, also if you like what i'm doing over here you can join the youtube membership program just to let you guys know uh, i'm going to have the ama with uh, all the 399 tier uh, you know Uh, members uh, by the end of uh, this month the most probably will be the last week i'll be posting it on the youtube page if you want to support me on patreon you can go to patreon.com/charvak and if you're watching it on uh, on youtube right now you see the link on the screen too 
and on that note i'll end things for today until then namaste goodbye see you next time